Do you ever wonder if you're saved or what saved even means or what God is like or what Jesus did? Some people are embarrassed to ask these really basic questions, but please don't be. They're the most important questions you could ever ask. And that's why I want to give you a brand new copy of this little book I wrote called The Basics. Uh, you can get your paper copy or your digital copy or your audio copy or your video version just by going to timeofgrace.org slash the basics. This week, I want to talk about marriage. For the singles among us, uh, there's still a lot that we can learn on this topic. And for those of us who are married, it's always good to have the reminder. Uh, like pianos, uh, marriages need tuning. And the way that God does that tune-up work is that he reminds us of everything he has to say to us in his word. Uh, whenever I have the privilege of, of doing like a, a marriage seminar or a workshop, um, afterwards my wife says I'm a better husband for a good three days. We, we all need that reminder. Well, today I just want to talk about the blessing of marriage. Uh, God instituted marriage all the way back in the Garden of Eden. He created Adam and then he made this declaration. He said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. I, I always think it's interesting when you're reading the Bible to just stop at any point in the story and say, now if I were God, how would I finish this? And for me, when I read this account and I see he says, it's not good for the man to be alone, I'll make a helper suitable for him, I would think the next line would read, so he made Eve. <laughs> but it doesn't. Instead, God has Adam go and name all the animals. Why in the world would he do that? Well, as Adam is naming all the animals, he's naming the buck and he's naming the doe and, and the male this and the female that, he comes to a realization. There's no one for me. There's no suitable helper. In a way, Adam says, where's my hen, right? And so what was God doing with that? He was leading Adam to realize that he had a need so that when he was given that gift of Eve, he would be all the more appreciative. God does that for us too, doesn't he? He doesn't always give us what we need immediately. Sometimes he lets us wait so that when we do receive that gift, we appreciate it all the more. And so maybe if you're single and are still looking right now, Perhaps that's what God is doing for you. So God created Adam and he formed him from the dust of the ground like a potter and, and, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. But then he made Eve differently. Uh, he, he took a rib from Adam and he made Eve out of it. Uh, why? Uh, couldn't he have just said, let there be Eve and there was Eve? Uh, yeah. Uh, couldn't he have formed Eve out of the dust of the ground and breathed into her nostrils the breath of life? Well, yeah, but God was teaching Adam and Eve something. He, he was saying, you know what? You are part of each other and you belong together. He was saying, Adam, you now need Eve and Eve, you need Adam. He was creating a God-pleasing dependency. It's how God made us as people. All people need people. And God can fulfill that need in many different ways. He can fulfill it with, with friends and family and co-workers. But the greatest way that he fulfills that need is by blessing us with a spouse. So then, God creates Adam and Eve and, and he presents Eve to Adam. And it's great. The Bible records Adam's response. He says, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. In Hebrew, it's an interjection. Uh, a colloquial, wow. Adam was thrilled with the gift that God had given him. And you know, God still does the same for us today. Uh, no, guys, he didn't whisper in your ear, hey, she's the one, you should really go ask her. Uh, 
but he blesses your God-pleasing decision as, as men and women to, to get married, and then he is the one that joins husbands and wives together. You see what that means? <laughs> that means that you can, you can wake up every morning and look at the person lying next to you, and you can say what Adam did. <laughs> now, you might not say, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, but you can still say, wow, what a gift from God. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> that, that God not only took care of you for eternity by sending his son to give his life for you on the cross, but he also takes care of us for right now by giving us the gift of spouses. Thank God for your spouse today if you're blessed with one. And tell them that you're thankful that God gave you them as a gift. Let's pray. Dear Lord, you started marriage in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Continue to bless people with spouses. Teach us to cherish your gift of marriage as well as the spouse you have blessed us with. In your name we pray it. Amen. Yesterday we saw how God brought Adam and Eve together as husband and wife. Immediately following that account, the next verse in the Bible gives us three ingredients for marriage, principles that'll set a firm foundation under a marriage. Uh, the verse goes like this, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And I just want to walk through that passage and, 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 and pull out those three ingredients. So the first thing the passage says is that a man will leave his father and mother. In other words, husband and wife are going to leave behind or refocus all those other relationships in their lives. Uh, so for husbands, um, your priority structure has changed. Same with wives. It now goes God, and then spouse, and then children, and then everyone else, including friends and, and, and family, even parents. Uh, so for husbands, when, when you, your friends want to go out on a Friday night, um, it's not just automatically going to be that you go out on a Friday night. You have a new priority structure. And of course, um, wives are, are so often um, wanting their husbands to have that time with friends, so very often they will have no problem with you going out with them. Um, very quickly, husbands, you'll learn which sure means yes and which sure means you better stay home. Uh, and for wives, it, it means that since your priority structure has changed, uh, your mother can no longer be the, the main marriage counselors, right? Or marriage counselor for your marriage. Um, first of all, think how awkward that is for, for your husband if your mother knows all of the dirty laundry. And secondly, since your husband is now number two, second only to God in your life, um, you owe it to him to try to work out those issues together as a couple. And of course, if, if you can't, there are marriage counselors and there are pastors that you can talk to. So the first key is that husband and wife will leave behind or refocus all those other relationships in their lives. Uh, the second one is this. The passage says, so a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. So both the man and the woman will commit to each other by joining as a unit. Well, when does that happen? <laughs> Well, that happens on your wedding day. When you make that promise in front of God and everyone else that you are going to remain husband and wife for the rest of your lives. Now, anyone who's been married for more than a day will be able to answer this question. When you are united as a unit on your wedding day, do you have marriage figured out? No. <laughs> and that's why the third key is so important. Both the man and the woman, it says, will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So both the husband and the wife will commit to becoming one flesh, to a lifetime of growing in unity, which often involves unselfish compromise. So did you catch the essence of marriage in those three ingredients? 
Uh, maybe you'll catch it if I say them all quickly, all in a row. So both the man and the woman commit to each other by leaving behind or refocusing all those relationships in their lives. Uh, both the man and the woman commit to each other by joining as a unit, and both the man and the woman commit to a lifetime of growing in unity. Did you catch it? It's love. No, it's commitment. The essence of marriage is commitment. And, and there are a ton of keys to commitment. I mean, it takes hard work, it takes priority, it takes love, it takes respect, it takes growth in God's word. But the most important key to commitment is seeing how totally committed God is to you as husband and wife. Jesus never gave up on your salvation, but he loved you all the way to a cross. And he still loves you today. He always loves, he always forgives, he always says, I'm not giving up on you. Now that's commitment. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, you committed to winning our salvation and now guiding us home to heaven. Use your total commitment to inspire us to commit to one another as husbands and wives. Amen. We're talking about marriage this week. Now, when a couple wants to get married and you ask them why do they want to get married, what does every couple say, hopefully anyway? They say because we love each other. And that's a great reason. But we have to understand what we mean by the word love or what the Bible means by the word love. Uh, we're not talking about the teenage girl who might come home and say that she's in love with a boy because he's so cute and he's so nice to her. Uh, no, love, love is more than that. So what's your definition of love? How would you describe it? Uh, I can say that I love tacos and I can say that I love my wife, uh, but those two things are not the same, right? They're close, but no, they're not even close to the same. You know what the word means just by the context of how I'm using it. Well, Jesus tells us this in John 13. He says, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. So what does Jesus mean by the word love? In English, we just have one word. In Greek, there are actually four words, and our English word kind of captures fragments of all of them without really grasping one fully. So the first word um, I'll talk about is the, the Greek word storge. Uh, this is the, the love of dependency. Uh, this is the love that children have for their parents. So if you ask my youngest children why they love mom and dad, what are, what are they going to say? They're going to say, oh, because they play with us and they give us food and sometimes they give us candy and they, they read books to us and they, they pray with us and they tuck us in at night. And those are all wonderful things. But understand that if you did those things for my children, they would have this type of love for you, that love of dependency. Now, is that a good kind of love for husbands and wives to have for each other? Absolutely. It's wonderful to see how God, um, how, how husband and wife complement one another in a marriage and appreciate what your spouse um, brings to the relationship that maybe you don't. Uh, the second type of love is philos. This is where we get the word Philadelphia, um, the city of brotherly love. But philos is the love on the basis of similarity. So this is the friendship love. This is why you like people. Uh, you're friends with people you have things in common with. I'll sometimes ask people if they're still best friends with the person they were best friends with in kindergarten, and most often the answer is no. Well, why? Is it because that person's a bad person? No. It's just that you grew in different directions and now you're friends with people that you have things in common with. Now, is this a good love to have between husband and wife? Absolutely. What a blessing it is when you actually like your spouse, right? And a third type of love is eros. 
Eros is where we get the word erotic from. This is the, the sexual love in a relationship between husband and wife. Um, this is a love that wants to be completed. So I may be dating myself a little bit here, but if you remember the movie Jerry Maguire, Tom Cruise, he says, you complete me. That's, that's really what this love is, is getting after. Now, is this a love that you want husbands and wives to have for each other? Again, absolutely. What a blessing it is when you are attracted to your spouse. But then there's that fourth kind of love, agape love. It's different than all the others. Um, this love is the love that seeks the ultimate good of the object. It is a love that is totally determined in the heart of the one doing the loving um, without any uh, thought of the lovable characteristics of the object. In other words, this is the only love where you can say, I love you because I love you. And so even if your spouse is acting unlovable, this love says, I'm still going to do what's best for you. So do you see the difference between agape love and the other three types of love? I mean, the other three types of love, they're all de dependent on the object of the love. So, uh, storge, I love you because I'm dependent in some way that you provide something for me. Um, philos, I, I love you because, well, we have things in common. Or, or eros, I love you because I'm, I'm, I'm attracted to you. But, but agape is the only one that says I love you simply because I love you. So which type of love do you think Jesus said he wants us to have for one another when he says, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another? It's that third, it's that, that, that fourth kind of love, it's agape love. The other three ebb and flow, and you know that, even in a marriage relationship. But Jesus says, I always want you to love each other the way I've loved you. That Jesus loved you all the way to a cross, even when we didn't deserve that. Uh, let's pray for that love now. Dear Jesus, you love us not because we are lovable, but because you chose to love us anyway. Help husbands and wives love each other the way you love us. Amen. Love is more than a feeling. Uh, listen to how the Bible describes love using words that are probably very familiar to you if you've ever been to a wedding in a church. From 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Do you see what I mean? Love is more than a feeling. In fact, the Apostle Paul, the way he describes it, he would say, the question is not so much what is love, but what does love do? Love, love is as much an action too. And now since God's love is what provides us with the motivation and inspiration to love one another, understanding God's love is key. So what I want to do is I just want to walk through three beautiful passages that describe God's love for us to see what's involved with this special agape, selfless love. So the, the first passage is from John 3.16. You know it well. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So what's involved with this love? What does this love do? This love gives. And it doesn't give its leftovers. It gives its most prized possession. God loved you so much that he gave his Son. Why? Because he was seeking your ultimate good. He was seeking your salvation. This kind of love never asks the question, what about me? It only ever asks the question, 
What do they need right now? And so what can you give to your spouse today? Uh, the next passage I want to talk about is from, from uh, John as well, John 15, where Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And obviously he's talking about his love for us. So what's involved with this love? It has no boundaries. And it's willing to endure pain even. Jesus was willing to go all the way to the point of death on a cross for us. Uh, this love is substitutionary. It's willing to take someone else's pain so that they don't have to. Now, I think this one is kind of funny because um, when I think about this, I, I, I think I'd be willing to die for my wife, right? And all of the husbands out there, I believe you when you say that you would be willing to step in front of a bullet for your wife, you would be willing to give your life for her. I absolutely believe that. But the thing is, God doesn't ask most of us to do that. Instead, he gives us a whole bunch of little ways that we can show this kind of love or this aspect of that love. Let me just give you an illustration. So let's say that I want to meet with um, you as a couple. And, and I set up a meeting with your wife and, and uh, we make the appointment for, uh, we'll say, 6 o'clock. Okay, and, and then she's going to communicate that to you. Well, she accidentally tells you that the meeting's at 6.30. So on the night of the meeting, she and I are sitting in the office having small talk for half an hour and you show up at 6.30 and I say to you, well, why are you late? Uh, we had a meeting at 6. What would you say? Now, you could substitutionarily take her pain by just simply saying, oh, I'm sorry, Pastor, I was late. But what would you say? Oh, you would throw her under the bus in a heartbeat, wouldn't you? You would say, well, she told me 6.30. <laughs> God gives us so many little ways to live for the ones we claim to be willing to die for. And the third passage I want to look at is from Romans 5. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Did you catch that? N not while we were good Christians, not while we were good people, not even while we were showing steady improvement. No, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This love is totally undeserved and unconditional. It doesn't depend on how um, lovable the person is. This love is willing to, to love even if the person doesn't deserve it. And so I'll leave you with this today. In any relationship, I want you to know that you have the ability to stop the downward spiral. See, what happens is this. Somebody behaves badly or says something hurtful, and then what does the other person do? They stoop to that level and they say something hurtful in response, and then this person feels vindicated, and then they continue the downward spiral. But you have the, you have the ability to stop that. What happens when bitterness meets grace and forgiveness? Well, it's really hard to be mad at someone who is trying to love you, right? What do you want to do for the person who is bending over backwards to do what's best for you and to love you? Well, you're going to want to respond in kind and the spiral can go up instead of down. What do you want to do for someone who's bending over backwards trying to do what's best for you? You're going to want to do, do the same back to them. And what kind of marriage will that be if you can perfectly do that? Well, that'll be a marriage made in heaven. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, bless our relationships with the love that you show us. Help our love to be giving, unconditional, and undeserved. In your name I pray. Amen. 
Agree or disagree, forgiveness is the most important aspect of marriage. Well, I suppose you could disagree with that by saying that agape love is. Love is something we're talking a lot about today because it's Valentine's Day. Uh, but to be fair, forgiveness is a big part of that selfless agape love. Since you know that sin is going to take place in your marriage because every marriage is made up of two sinners, I'm not sure how a marriage could survive without true forgiveness. The truth is, many don't. Well, what does God say about marriage? Uh, there was a time in Jesus' ministry when Peter excitedly came up to him and asked him a question, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Now, when you're asking a question and you want the person to give a response, you need to pause so that they can actually answer it. Uh, Peter was not interested in Jesus' answer um, because he just wanted to show his generosity. Um, he immediately shouted out, up to seven times? As though that was a great number. You see, in that day and age, there was a misconception about, number one, how God forgives, and then by extension, how we should forgive. Uh, the misconception was this. Some, some of the rabbis taught that God was willing to forgive a sin to an individual up to three times, the same sin. And so, by extension, if you want to be a very generous forgiver and forgive like God, you'd be willing to forgive three times. Well, well Peter wanted to one-up that or four-up that, and he said, well, I'd be willing to forgive up to seven times. Jesus needed to correct Peter's understanding and our understanding of a couple of things. Number one, how God forgives. And then number two, how we are to forgive. And so Jesus tells this parable. It's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. He tells Peter about this king who wanted to settle accounts. And so he calls a servant in, and this is just an incredible, it's almost an unbelievable story. He calls a servant in who owes him 10,000 talents. To put that in perspective, that's the equivalent of billions of dollars. This would, this would never happen. And so the king demands that the servant pay this money back. But the servant's not able to pay, obviously, and so he falls on his knees and he begs. He says, please have patience with me and I'll pay back everything, which could never happen. Again, put it in perspective. Let's say you owe $5 billion and the interest rate is 6% and you have a job that makes 50000 a year. How long is it going to take you to pay that debt back? You would never be able to, right? You just go further and further in debt. And so the king knows this and he does the most, again, unbelievable thing. He forgives the debt and he lets him go. Can you imagine the relief of that servant who just had that incredible debt forgiven? Just to give you a, a, a microscopic view of that relief, what if I said to you today that your mortgage is completely paid for? Um, right? The, the relief you would feel. So then the servant who had that debt forgiven, he goes out and he finds a fellow servant who owes him about 100 denarii, which is about three months' wages. Now, please don't misunderstand. Um, three months' wages is a lot. Uh, that's not a small amount, right? If you lost three months' wages, would that be a big deal? Absolutely. However, the point is, it's nothing compared to the billions of dollars that he had been forgiven. So he demands the debt from the servant, and the servant falls on his knees before him and begs, please have patience with me, and I will pay back everything. Does that sound familiar? It should. That's what the servant did before the king. But this time, the servant refused, and he had the man thrown in jail until he could pay back everything he owed. Are you outraged? So was the king. He called that servant back in, and he threw him in jail until he could pay back everything he owed, which meant that was for eternity. Do you see the point of the parable? 
We are that first servant who owed the king an unpayable debt. And what did the king do? He forgave it. Every one of us can relate to Barabbas. Do you remember Barabbas? He was the criminal that was um, convicted of murder and standing um, in jail, awaiting for crucifixion with Jesus and the other two criminals. His, his, his uh, conviction was for murder and a host of other crimes, not unlike our lists. Well, there he is sitting in his jail cell and he hears the footsteps of the soldier walking down the hall and he hears the sound of the key in the cell door lock and he hears the door open and the guard says to him the same thing God says to each one of us. You're free to go. Jesus is dying in your place. That's what Jesus did for you and for me. That's how much he's forgiven us. And so now what do you want to do in your relationships, in your marriage? Oh, one word, forgive. If your spouse tried to sin against you as much as they could for the rest of your life, please don't do that, by the way, they could never sin against you as much as the debt that we owed to God that he has already forgiven us. So forgive each other because Jesus has forgiven you. And then actually act like that at home. One of the most powerful things in the world is when a spouse forgives and then acts as though they don't remember that sin anymore. It's a way for you to, to love your spouse. It's a way for you to show your spouse how God acts. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you for forgiving me so enormously. Help me forgive my spouse and others in my life that completely. In your precious name I pray, amen. Hey friends, you may or may not know that Time of Grace Ministries is 100% donor supported. You know what that means. We wouldn't be here without you. At all. Thank you. We're so grateful for the ways that you allow us to encourage others with the word of God and if God would move you in your heart to be able to, or to do that again, we'd, uh, we'd be so grateful. Click on the link below and you'll find more opportunities to support the ministry.